Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4, 23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the types of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. at a couple of the next two weeks, we're going to look at four words is going to be the next theme for the next couple of weeks. Four words about prayer today and then four words about scripture. Um, when we think about prayer, uh, it is both a sense in which prayer has a formative aspect, but we don't talk a lot about the way it's a formula that can lead to that formation. There's a specific approach to it. Oftentimes we, we forget that prayer is both a personal thing but also a communal thing. So some general comments as we get into this. The first is that if we only live in the world that prayer, appropriately as Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. There's a very personal aspect to it. Uh, but if it's only lived in the very, very personal then the phrase I've used before is that whenever I pray to God alone, God always agrees with me, becomes truer and truer in life. And uh, we talk theologically about the, the myoptic, which is a short-sightedness, that it's only a prayer that revolves around me. However, if we live only in the communal aspect, we distance ourselves from that personal touch. Augustine said thousands of years ago, God does not want us to pray without paying attention to what we are saying. God doesn't want us to pray without paying attention to what we're saying. The communal aspect goes all the way back in the Hebrew faith where there was a written liturgy that would invite the people into the prayers. As, as Methodists, we have a liturgical kind of flow um, to kind of remind you what that looks like as Methodists we're were descendants of John Wesley, who was an Anglican. The Anglican Church came from England. And the gift of the Anglican Church when it was created was a book of common prayer. Henry VIII couldn't get his divorce from the Pope again. So with an act of supremacy overnight, he made himself the head of the new church called the Church of England. And he said to all the Catholic priests, you have two choices. I'll cut your head off or you can be an Anglican priest. So he had a whole bunch of Anglican priests overnight. They created the Book of Common Prayer. It's called the BCP. Now the gift of the BCP is that having a, a Book of Common Prayer that guides you, it takes you outside yourself so that, that not everything emanates from you, but you're taken to a place. And so there's a gift in that. But if we think about those two sort of polarities as if they're extremes, you can never touch a personal cry of prayer to God from your heart if you only read the prayers in church. You'll never have a sense of being outside yourself if it's only about you and God. Because you see, your faith can be personal, must be personal, but it cannot be private. We're created for community together. 
So what we're going to do to unpack things today is um, we're going to look uh, as a flow. I'm going to give you a book recommendation. I'm going to tell you uh, what book we're going to follow uh, from a construct about prayer. And we're going to pack two specific scriptures that relate to uh, the four words about prayer. But first, a word about going deeper. So I'm going to kind of flip the scale. Rather than saying if you want to go really deep at the end, I'm going to front load that with this. This book is by a favorite author of mine, Thomas Oden, and uh, it's called In Search of Solitude. Thomas Oden is a brilliant academician. He died several years ago. And what he did is he takes his knowledge of academia in the historical faith, and he marries it with his personal struggle of how to move through losing his wife. And he talks about a place that they would go to um, that was like a little peninsula and how that became a solitude for him. So he takes the rhythms and you'd think this ordinary thing happens. And then he says, oh, you think you're new to this? In 296, one of the desert fathers was saying this. And what's really cool that you realize is the same struggles that we have today are the same struggles that exist for people to know how do we connect with God in prayer? So that's the deeper dive. I'm really, it's, it's broken into six sections and he breaks it down and using the classic Christian approach to praying throughout the day in six different movements. Um, so I'm thinking maybe that'd be a cool thing to look at for Lent. I, I don't know. I just, I, I love how he takes you through a simple kind of regiment in saying, here is his struggle of the loss of his wife. Here is what the historical faith has taught him. And here's this moment of faith that finds the blend of those two. So if you want to dive deeper, you can get it for Kindle for $5.99. It is, I think, $19 online, but um, I'd highly recommend it. What we're going to do is we're going to use um, a book that has been written by, um, and many of you have been through and seen by, by Pete Gregg, How to Pray, a Simple Guide for Normal People. Um, the only problem with this book title is I don't know where a normal people is. Um, maybe an ordinary kind of person. It was the focus of one of our classes on the table on Wednesday night, inviting people to walk through it, that Kimberly invited folks to, uh, we'd ask her to help walk through the book. It's got four kind of things uh, that's listed in it. We're going to jump in, though. We're going to start with Luke. We're going to start with uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, as Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's also found in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in Matthew uh, between chapter 6 and 9. But in respect to God's holy word, let's uh, begin with the scripture. I invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to invite you, as you can imagine, you're going to read uh, the Lord's Prayer together. And you'll need to read from the screen because the way we recite it and the way it's recorded has one little interesting twist. So one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. That would be John the Baptist was teaching his disciples to pray. And so Jesus said to them, when you pray, say this, and let's pray together. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and let's bow together for prayer. May your spirit, O oh God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together 
will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ, in whose name we gather, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will depart and seek to serve you faithfully. And all of God's people said, Amen. Prayer is an interesting thing. Um, I don't know if you all know this or not, but um, I think a couple weeks ago when Blake and Michaela got married, I heard that Michaela was extremely nervous um, about, about walking down the aisle, you know. And, and, and so the pastor told her, said, Michaela, I, I, I'll just encourage you, Michaela. All, all you have to focus on is three things to, to, to get through this. And, and when you walk up to those doors, just focus on the aisle and just say to yourself, the aisle. All right? And then when you walk in the aisle, all you got to do, Michaela, is remember and keep in mind uh, the altar. The altar is going to be right behind me. It's going to be right in front of you. So you just focus on the altar. So you think of the aisle, think about the altar. And as you get closer to the altar, you'll see Blake. And so just focus on him, right? Just focus on him. So you can imagine for everybody who went to the wedding, they were really perplexed when they heard Michaela sort of prayerfully chanting, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll I made that up. I just inserted their names. That's not true. They had a beautiful wedding. She wasn't nervous at all. But do you ever think about the words that you use when you pray? And if I could tell you a word of confession, I wish God could more clearly reveal to me a simple difference. And that is the difference when I need to persevere because God has put something on my heart or has revealed something to me. And I need to press through with perseverance as opposed to God saying, Bert, the door is shut. The windows are barred down. You can't even get on the porch. Move on, Bert. Move on. That's a matter of discernment. I wish I had that clarity, and I don't. And so what I say to you is whenever you pray to God alone, God will most often always agree with you. It's why you need community. Because it's in community when we are praying about what's happening that Paul will say, uh, hey, Bert, uh, God... God just really put you on my heart with this word I want to share with you. And it could speak to where I am. Or I would say, hey, Dan, I, I just really was thinking of you this week. And God put this on my heart. In community, we help each other kind of unpack that. Now, a second kind of thing is, is a larger kind of context we're going to get to later about is, is how we end prayers. We're going to unpack that as well. But if we use Pete Gregg's imagery, he uses the word pray, P-R-A-Y, and comes up with four different letters. I grew up with acts. Anybody else do that? A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at what, what does Greg recommend as we start to move to unpack the Lord's Prayer. First, the P in prayer he would recommend stands for pause. To pause is to be still and to know God's presence. Here's what Pete Gregg says. To start, we must stop. I like that, right? To start, we must stop. To move forward, we must pause. This is the first step in a deeper prayer life. Put down your wish list and wait. Ooh, put down your wish list and wait. You see, pausing helps us do two things. It helps us to center our lives on God. It helps us listen to God. But pausing alone can be a challenge in prayer if you do not have an active life of reading the Scriptures because it's in reading the Scriptures that you will hear and recognize God's voice and distinguish it from the voices of the world. 
Pick your, pick your late night show that you watch, whichever one, whether it be info, news, slash, whatever. But usually it starts off with a monologue because a monologue is someone speaking, right? In fact, most sermons are monologues, but the purpose of it should be to create a dialogue within the people. In much of the African-American church tradition, my brother Kenneth Levinson reminds folks, this is going to be a dialogue and I need you to talk back to me. Because most time we'll make points and whatnot, but in most African-American church's tradition, there's a very much freer conversation of, you got it right, preacher, keep going, or be careful, preacher, or amen, right? And sometimes we need that. We need to hear that. But we listen to God in prayer. And if there's not a conversation that occurs, it's just a monologue. It's a wish list to God. Now, here's a challenge. Again, think of the polarities, right? Personal versus communal. You are called in Scripture, according to seem to be so clear that we're in agreement on, don't seem to be answered. We pray in times of difficulty. We pray in the midst of terrible diagnosis. And the prayer doesn't seem to work. I can't answer that for you. But I'll sit with you and we'll pour our hearts out to God. But the first thing we do is we pause. We're still and we're in God's presence. Now, if you're just going to be still and not read the scriptures, what will happen the first time you're still is you'll hear the air conditioner unit kick on. you hear the car in a distance or the tick of a clock. And you'll have all these distractions and if you do that when you're still, let me encourage you to stay in the moment because what it's mean is your senses are being awakened and you're listening. But listen to God. The psalmist says clearly, my people listen, they're sheep of my pasture and they listen to my voice. So practice pausing. Put down your list and wait and listen to God. Now, if you're working with your kids, I uh, had a father stay behind at the early service and say, how do I do that with my kids? I mean, just say to kids, okay, we're going to wait and listen on God. That's a hard thing. Here's an easy thing to do. Think about reading a particular scripture, and then in that moment, ask, help your kids know, ask them to pray, walk them through praying, asking God to help them see or hear what that scripture means for their life. So it could be, for example, um, Matthew 25 says that we, that Whenever you help someone who's hungry or thirsty or in prison, you visit them. What you've done is you've done it to the least of these and you've done it to Christ. Maybe helping your kids say, okay, I wonder who God wants to help me notice. Right? So walk that time of prayer with your child saying, let's pray that God will help you see who you might notice and who you need to be Christ-like to. And that's a way of giving a tangibility to it. But first we do is we pause. The second thing we do is we rejoice, according to Greg. Um, pausing leads us naturally to rejoicing because when we slow down, we begin to notice God's goodness. It doesn't mean the struggles are going to magically disappear. But it means that when we really focus on pausing, we come to a place to say, how can I give thanks to God for what I do have? You see, if you only have a wish list, you're going to measure the sovereignty of God over what you get based on what you want. Okay. But if you understand that the sovereignty of God, the love of Christ, is that he is reaching out to you, that he is with you. And to think of earlier, are there things too big or too small? 
Greg says it this way, that the microscopic prayer or the microscope leads to a hyper-focus on the smallest detail of our own lives, right? We have sort of a microscopic approach. A telescopic approach takes the big things and makes them apparent. God's moving in both, both the big stuff and the small stuff. Because sometimes the big stuff is an accumulation of smaller things. But what you do in the moment is you rejoice, even in the face of all the challenges, you think, what can I give thanks to God for? What can I give thanks to God for? You pause, you rejoice. Now, to put a little more meat in what we're going to do in the next two steps, referring to Scripture, number three, ask. P-R-A-Y, the ask. The ask is to ask God to help you to, um, to see those, uh, to see yourself um, and those you care about. Um, it's really just sort of a God help me. So if we think about the Lord's Prayer, it's constructed in a very specific way. It's consistent in Matthew and Luke. There is first the sense of hallowed recognition. That's the adoration part of the old, the old acronym, Acts. But from that point, it's, it's, it's a supplication. It, it's an asking the whole way through. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And did you notice that little difference? That we have sort of prayed it differently than the text says. The text says, forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who sins against us. So in some ways, we pottery barned up the Lord's Prayer to make it just a little less intrusive. But there is a compelling call of the gospel. But it is an ask. God, forgive and then there's that, that supplication that asks, lead us not into temptation. So everything about asking is, is embodied within this Lord's Prayer. Now let me pose this idea to you. Have you ever heard the scripture that Jesus said, ask for whatever you want in my name and you will receive it? Yep. Friends, this is not a Harry Potter wand that has come to the place called Calvary. Okay? Here's what that means. How many times when you have had dinner, you grew up, I grew up this way, our, our closing part of our prayer was for Jesus' sake. Or we say in Jesus' name, or we do that all the time. Here is what is based on that understanding biblically. When you invoke somebody's name, you invoke their character and their their personality and their will. What you're basically doing is you're putting everything that you ask through, essentially through a Jesus filter. So I could say, um, Lord, uh, I just want you to help me win the lottery. I'm going to trot down here, the new 7-Eleven. I want you to help me win the lottery and buy a ticket. Well, why didn't God answer that? In Jesus' name, I just tag Jesus' name on the end of it. I, I can even throw in something like, God, I'll actually give you 15%, not 10 it doesn't happen. Well, the first problem is God says you got to buy a ticket. But I can't just magically throw Jesus' name on whatever I want. I have to run my request, my supplication through the Jesus filter. God, let your will prevail. Here's the struggle. I have prayed fervently for a physical cure or for restoration of brokenness for him, and they have not happened, and I do not know why. So I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. And I find some comfort that J.B. Phillips says that if you knew the reason for everything that God did or did not do, then your God fits in a box. 
And if your God fits in a box, your God is too small. So there's an element of the mystery. But we lean into the reality that God is with us even when the prayers we pray aren't answered. Or the ones we pray that are not as tragically filled but don't really get answered the way we want. And we look back and realize that country western song is true. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. But I don't know. There are a lot of cases I say I just don't know. But what I do know is prayers about asking God, laying your heart before God, and balancing the wish list with the waiting. We pause, we rejoice, and we ask. And in the fourth part of this formula that's really helpful to kind of guide us in these four words is to yield. Yielding is saying yes to God to welcome his love, his plans, and his presence into your day and into your life. Ultimately, it's saying, God, your will prevail. So in the same way that we say in Jesus' name, your will be done, we see this lived out exactly in the yielding of your life. So one thing is in asking, it's about what you request. and yielding, it's how you live and what you do. And keeping in mind our understanding of what we call the Christology of the church theologically, Christ was fully divine and fully human. He wasn't just the appearance of a man or just the appearance of divine. We believe, as Boethius said, he was the full God-man, fully divine, fully the nature of God, and fully human, right? Both, not the exclusion of the other, but both. So when we wonder, what does yielding look like? What does this Jesus filter look like? Well, what was Jesus' filter? It was God. So when we think about what's happening and we go to the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is about to fall on his knees, he's got the disciples, he put them a little further back, he's going to reference a cup. And the cup that we believe he's referencing is going to be what's known as the cup of Elijah at the Seder meal of Holy Communion. So when we give you a cup, the third cup at the Seder meal was the cup of redemption. We believe that's the cup that Jesus lifted to redeem something, to buy it back. When he said, this is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, the redemption cup is offered to us individually. The Elijah cup was never consumed because the Elijah cup would only be consumed when Elijah returns and there's a full restoration of Israel and God's will conquers all things and the people of Israel are restored. They would actually go and open the door at the Seder meal to say, hey, is Elijah out there? But the, the Elijah cup was never consumed. So when we think about the consummation of God's ultimate will, and we read this text, when Jesus talks about a cup, we think it's probably in reference to that cup. Or it could be the cup of suffering. But the imagery of God's consummate will, and look how this gets lived out. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He set the disciples back a little bit as recorded in Mark. He says, going on a little farther. Now, that's a whole, that could be a sermon in itself, isn't it? That when Jesus contemplates, what does it mean for him to voluntarily give his life for you? He's always going to go on a little farther. And going on a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour being what is to come. His passion, right? His scourging and his crucifixion. Abba, Father. You've got a heavenly Father that loves you. Jesus Christ said, Abba, Father. Everything is possible for you. Can you imagine if you knew exactly what was to come? In your divine nature, you knew exactly what was to come, and the physicality could not be avoided. 
He didn't set aside his humanity to endure all the pain of the scourging and the, and the, and the death. Take this cup from me. This cup that's going to be the consummation of God's will, which is the breaking through the death of Christ. Death has been conquered when he rises from the grave. And the rising from the grave can only happen through the cross. But what does Jesus say? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's the kind of love that God had for you in Christ. And it's the kind of love that Christ has for you. He says, God, I need your will to prevail. That's what it means to yield your life. That's what it means when we shape and form our children or we talk with our youth or we talk with each other. How are you yielding your life? Are you pausing? Are you rejoicing? Are you asking? Are you yielding? It's a really easy thing to say. We're going to say it out loud so that as you think about your own prayer life, you can begin to think about this four-step formula. It's not the end. It's not geometry, but it's a reminder to you. Pause. Rejoice. Ask and yield. Join with me. Pause. Rejoice. Ask and yield.